This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jem Lloyd-Williams, and he is the CEO of Mindshare UK. And if you are interested in anything to do with creativity, media, leading a 9,000-person company, purpose, advertising, the content overload, then this is the perfect podcast for you. We talk about everything from what the modern media landscape looks like today, how it's changed, and the relationship between agencies and their clients. We talk about how media agencies such as Mindshare stay relevant. We talk about what success means in his role as CEO, just going on two years now in in role. We discuss Mindshare's public profile relative to other media companies who possibly have a, a larger profile and what that means in terms of you know, awareness, client wins, etc. This is just a, a masterclass on all things media, advertising, effectiveness, go down the list. Stick around to the end of the episode where I sit down with Thomas Lint from Account Insight to discuss the fascinating conversation we just had with Gem Lloyd Williams. Without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Gem Lloyd Williams. My name is Nathan Anibaba, and this is Agency Dealmasters. Agency Dealmasters is a series of conversations with world-class agency leaders building great agency businesses. I believe everyone belongs in the growth journey, and this show is dedicated to the stories and the lessons of ambitious agency builders of all types by examining their history, competitive advantage, and what makes them tick. Now, let's jump in. Jem Lloyd-Williams is the UK CEO of Mindshare, a global multi-award winning media agency network of 9,300 people across 86 countries. Mindshare look after some of the world's biggest advertisers, including Unilever, Ford and Nike, as well as impressive UK brands such as Carwow and LV. Jem was former CEO of Visium UK and has held several leadership roles at Mediacom. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Jem Lloyd-Williams, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you so much. And what, a, what a fantastic intro. I'm blown away. Thank you. Well, it's all true. And I'm super excited <laughs> to have you on the, sh- on the show. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Plenty of questions. So let's jump straight into it. You've done so much in your career. I thought an interesting place to start would be for you to kind of share the most interesting kind of formative experiences in your marketing life. I'll, I'll let you decide how far back we want to go and sort of what you want to talk about. But I'm always fascinated by people's backgrounds and histories. Sure. I, I actually started my career in television in the sales department at uh, Thames TV, which obviously is no longer. But but uh, yeah, so I, I, I started straight after university, came down to London and started there. And in terms of formative careers, I, I worked for some amazing people there. Uh, lots of uh, people who know me will know that I worked for a guy called Nick Milligan, who is... Uh, very inspirational, fantastic guy. And, you know, in terms of formative, it was a very high paced, um, uh, very uh, kind of commercial, commercially focused job, uh, working with lots of media agencies. I was on the sort of media owner side as opposed to being on the agency side as, as I am at the moment. Um, learned the industry from, from the sort of media owner perspective. Uh, again, very commercially focused, very kind of, you know, um, all about kind of servicing the agencies and giving them what they needed and what they wanted for their clients, uh, which I think was a really good foundational uh, time in my career because it, it sort of taught me the, the 
the, the rudiments of, of how marketing works. It taught me the, um, the absolute uh, uh, imperative of, of delivering great service to whoever you're working with, whether they're a customer or a client or a, or a, a colleague. Um, had a lot of fun, which, which you know, the, the, the marketing industry or the media industry is, you know, it attracts really good people for a number of different reasons. Some of that is because it is really good fun. And, you know, we, we, had, we had plenty of good laughs when I was at Thames. So that, that was really a really brilliant start, a really good intro into, into my career. The, the other really critical thing that happened to me that I think has helped my progress uh, since is I took some time out and became a um, freelance journalist. Uh, always wanted to be a writer, um, had, had uh, aspirations of being the next George Orwell, uh, <laughs> but uh, that didn't quite work out. But, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but he's a hero of mine. But, but learning to write uh, and learning to communicate really clearly and concisely and precisely, I think has helped me in, in every role I've had since. And it's not something I just, just enjoy doing, but it's also something I think that's really helped me with my with my career. Uh, when I was at Medicom, I was, I was in the strategy team. And of course, being able to express yourself in a way that's compelling, but also coherent and on point really helped me, I think. So you say, quote, writing is the one skill that accelerated your career more than anything else. That's quite a, that's quite a statement. <laughs> you could argue it's because I don't have any other skills, but but, <laughs> but, the, but the I think when I look back on it now, um, and some of the you know seminal moments in my career, they have been based in and around being able to communicate and to be able to persuade people and you know to to help win um, new business. You know, obviously when you're in an agency, you know all agencies lose clients. That's just the way. That's just the way of the world. You know, clients move around, mm. but to be able to win clients, you know, great agencies win clients and they win well and they win uh, and they win often. Um, and I think communication is such an enormous part of winning winning pitches people buy people but they also buy you know how they how that person's made them feel and how they've come across and I think just being able to express myself clearly and coherently has has made a massive difference we'll talk about books and writing a little bit later on in the interview because um I know you got some fascinating recommendations I'm sure you do (laughs) but how much would you say has changed from those early formative years in the industry to kind of where we are now I mean the media landscape has changed so much everything from the relationship between agencies and clients and the ability for clients to kind of I guess go direct to the publishers themselves which we can talk about a little bit later do the same features of media businesses excite you today as they once did in the past and kind of think how do you think it the industry has changed most significantly over the last few years well, I guess the, the the bit the most significant difference, of course, is is as you as you said, you know, the idea of sort of self serve media, um, whether that's on Facebook or any other platform, and you know the sort of automation of being able to go to market um, at scale is is I think the most significant difference. So so the sort of programmatic elements of of pretty much every medium now, um, you know, obviously weren't weren't around when I when I sort of started, and that has changed the relationship that clients have with, as you say, with publishers where they spend a lot of their money. But I think in a way it's, it's evolved their relationship with their agencies because um, 
the sophistication of some of those systems that you need to to, to succeed with uh, programmatic, whether that's in out of home or um, social or, or even sort of television these days. Um, you know, you, you need you need really good advice and you need really good, strong recommendations about how to get the most from your money, the most return from your money, whatever that whatever that return is that you're looking for, whether it's brand metrics or or hard business metrics or a combination of the two. And, you know, agencies have always been good at giving uh, clients the right advice and have always been good at understanding how to get the most return out of media. That's really what we do, um, you know, in the same way that hedge fund manager is looking to get the best return from investments for their clients we we, we do a similar thing um, but our tools i guess are advertising and media as opposed to you know um you know kind of a a, a, a hedge fund who would use you know um investment um instruments so i think the the big, most significant change is is the sort of automation and the programmatic ver, you know um, variants that you can use to, to go to market now with your advertising but the actual role of the agency has remained very, very much the same. Really good, strong, in-depth understanding of the media marketplace, understanding of our clients' categories and how people operate in those and how to get the most from your investments in media to return what you, what you need, whether that's brand performance or a combination of the two. With, with that being said, what are the main attributes or characteristics of a world-class media agency that does that the best. I mean, you know, there are, I mean, I'll, I'll come on to, to Mindshare and a number of other of your competitors in a moment, but what would you say are the main differentiators between those media agencies that are able to execute and do that best in class to those who aren't able to, um, to deliver on, on their clients' objectives? Well, first thing to say is that I think everyone is on is constantly having to evolve how they work with their clients because, you know, delivering the performance that clients need, you know, briefs are often changing, um, circumstances are changing, opportunities in the marketplace change. So it's a it's a, you know it's, I'm not sitting here saying we've we've got it um, absolutely down pat and we know exactly what we're doing every time. You're always constantly evolving, always constantly looking for new angles, looking for new data, for looking for new techniques and processes, and looking with, to work with new partners. But I think the the key the key differentiator is is obviously the people. You know, the an agency. Um, you know, we all have very similar processes. Um, we all have um, similar products. We all have similar tools. But the people who are driving those processes, the people who are um, at the the keyboard, you know, using those tools, um, the people who are talking to the media owners and working with them to get the best for our clients, you know, it's all about the people. And I know that sounds like a massive cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. And I think attracting and retaining and developing the best talent, you know, if you can get that right, then you're going to be a, a pretty good agency, I think. How do you think about doing that at Mindshare then? I mean, there are 9,300 of you across across the globe. I know that you've been doing a lot of work on your purpose recently and, yep. and making sure that that's really strong and people in Delhi or, or Beirut or Canada can can kind of align around the same vision, which is, I know, crucially, crucially important. How do you think about attracting and retaining the best possible people for Mindshare? 
I think purpose is a is a big lever, uh, certainly in terms of retaining uh, really great talent, because you know it is a it is a, a sort of parochial industry in the sense that we're all most most of us in London. Obviously, there's some very great, some brilliant agencies, uh, you know, elsewhere, but the majority of the of the agencies are are focused in London. So, you know, people do move around, and and you know, obviously, they're trying to build their careers and 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 what have you, and I totally understand that. But purpose, I think, other than just saying, you know, we want to, you know, drive profit for our clients, or we, we just want to, you know, win the most awards, or you know, which I, I, you know, I can buy, I can understand why some agencies really bang that drum. I think having something that's slightly, slightly more uh, focused around doing good, whatever your interpretation of good is. I think I think that that's our new positioning. Good growth is our is our, you know delivering good growth for our clients is our new positioning. And when you actually unpack that kind of positioning, it's it's that we're not trying to deliver you know profit back to our clients. Clearly, that's our that's the imperative. But to do it in a way that actually makes sense for our clients, delivers less impact on the planet, and is a better experience for the people we're trying to advertise to and influence. That actually feels quite purposeful to me, and that feels like something I can look, you know, look my sort of daughters in the eye and say, well, you know, yeah, I do work in media and I do work in advertising, and I'm I'm driving a sort of a consumer, you know, consumer economy, consumer consumer based economy, but I am trying to do it in a slightly better way than just uh, forcing, you know, trying to force people into buy stuff that they don't need, and and if I can feel like that as long in the tooth as I am, then hopefully that resonates with, with, with our teams. And that, that says to somebody who's, you know, 25 year old doing brilliant work for a client in our social team and our SEO team or our data and tech team, it gives them pause for thought to say, well, actually, okay, I am trying to drive, obviously I'm trying to drive profit for my client, but can I do it in a slightly more purposeful way? Can I do it in a way that's a bit more, focused around sustainability or, or or can I have a conversation with my client that says actually we don't want to use that data tactic because we don't feel as if it's particularly ethical and and that it, you know purpose doesn't have to be anything more complicated than that a reason a pause for thought and say well actually I want to do something in a slightly different way and that makes me feel good it delivers what my client needs and it and it, and it means I you know I feel like I'm doing something kind of worthwhile and of course we've only just launched the launch the positioning so attracting talent with that proposition we're sort of in the foothills of of that happening at the moment Mm. but i I think most people go to agencies when they see that um they do good work you know that that, that's the reason why i came to to mindshare because i could see that they had a stellar list of clients um they had some brilliant people but they did really good work they did they did interesting stuff that you could you know you can talk to somebody um, at a dinner party about what you do and say, well, yeah, you know, we, we, we did that campaign and it's actually, you know, it wasn't just about selling more KFC. It was actually about doing something, you know, kind of a bit more meaningful for them in terms of their provenance of where they get their chicken from or, you know, whatever it is. I'll come back to the KFC campaign a little bit later because I, I loved it and I want to go deep into that. But how, how do you come up with a purpose for 9,300 people for the 25 year old sitting in London who's in the social team to the person in Canada who's in the tech team and someone else in, in Turkey. Is that done top down? Is it your kind of idea and vision that that's driving it? Is it bottom up? Is it some something else in, in, in between? How do you come up with a purpose that is right for such a diverse range of people over the world? Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant question because I think often 
I've worked in other businesses and other agencies. I've seen other agencies who've got sort of a purpose and everyone's like, oh, you know, it's brilliant. And then you ask somebody in Canada and they go, oh, no, no idea what you're talking about. So to answer your question about that, it certainly wasn't me who came up with with the positioning. Uh, I think it was a, a, a big, you know, kind of global effort. Obviously, our new global CEO, Adam, um, is centered in New York. So he's got a, an amazing team of, 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 of people there who, who, um, who counsel him and, and advise him. But as with all things at Mindshare, it's a, it's a collective effort. It's a, it's a, um, it was a, it was a kind of collective effort in terms of coming up with that positioning. Um, and it came about, I think, simply because we needed a lightning rod for all of the disparate things that we were doing that actually all sit under this, this idea of kind of good growth. So, you know, we were already doing lots of interesting stuff around inclusion uh, in terms of the way that we plan, for instance. Um, but they kind of, it was just, you know, that's just inclusion in the way that we plan. It, did, it wasn't sort of, didn't sort of serve a higher purpose. Um, how we use data uh, in, in media, we, you know, we developed a data ethics compass, which, which enables us to tell clients whether the data tactics that we're using are, you know, ethically sound. That kind of sat a bit in isolation. So we had all of these different things. We had a carbon calculator, uh, which we developed, uh, um, or which, which we co-developed in the UK with our other group M agencies. That kind of sat there as a sort of a way of, you know, telling a client how much carbon footprint or how much carbon, um, uh, how much carbon was generated by the by the um, campaign they had. But that source just sort of sat on its own. And, and actually, when we looked around, surveyed all the things that we're doing, but all of them seemed to point towards either helping minimise the impact on the planet or basically giving people a better experience of our clients' advertising. So put those all together and we came up with good growth. Hmm. Absolutely love that. So when it comes to actually recruiting people, then actually hiring them, maybe talk us through uh, maybe your your hiring process. And then when it when it comes to the final decision, how much are you involved in actually uh, speaking with with people? And do you have any favorite interview questions that you like to ask people and kind of what have the best responses been? I, uh, you know, being, being totally honest, my team keep me kind of well away from most of the, most most of the interviews. Um, I've got a great track record in that sense. We'll take care of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but no, I think um, you know our recruitment processes has developed and evolved. I think a lot over the last year and a half. We use Group M, who are our holding company, who, who sort of run our kind of recruitment function for us because uh, it's a sort of centralised centralized um, function but it's very much informed by the agencies and I think you know using lots of different methods and processes to make sure that we're inclusive in our uh, shortlisting that we are not unconsciously biased in our interviews that we have um, you know a fair and and objective uh, feedback process um, that we are uh, making sure that we're not just uh, recruiting from you know, kind of rubric universities that we that we're going to, you know, mm. all of those different things are kind of built into our kind of recruitment processes now. You know, and you don't you don't need a degree to be a brilliant media practitioner. You really don't. You just need a really sharp mind and a, and a really sharp brain. Sure. And you need to be super inquisitive. You know, that that's that's the thing about media. It's always changing. Media is fluid. Even all of our clients' campaigns, you know, we're sort of optimizing on the fly. So you have to have a really inquisitive kind of quick fairly quick brain <laughs> my favorite interview question is what's seven percent of seven i don't know what? i don't know why <laughs> what <laughs> mental mental arithmetic i don't know yeah. why but I, I have 
I have this thing where if, if people are, I'm joking, it's not my favorite interview question, but it, <laughs> it, it often, it often stumps people. Mental arithmetic's a funny yardstick about about someone's intelligence. I think if you, if you're good at mental arithmetic. But is it, is it about them getting the right answer? Or is it about how they think no. and approach the problem? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like if somebody gets a calculator out and works it out on a calculator, then they're up, then they passed. Yeah. Smart. You know? uh, Cause you know, it's not, you know, it's not about trying to, uh, to, to, it's not about trying to trip people up in, in uh, interviews. I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why, that's why I'm not working for Mindshare. Well, no, I mean, you would, you would be very welcome, but I think the best question uh, that you can ask somebody in an interview is, you know, why do you want to come and work at my company? Mm. You know, and if somebody's got a really clear articulation of what that is, then brilliant. Mm. Mindshare has got a relatively low profile in the UK compared with some of your other sister agencies. Yep. Why is that the case? It's a good question. I suppose my question back to you would be, what's the purpose of profile? Mm. I think as long as we are showing up in the right places in terms of attracting talent, which I think we do, I think as long as we are celebrating our clients' successes um, with the campaigns that we help to deliver for them, and as long as we are contributing to the general conversation that, that needs to go on in the industry in terms of all of the issues that we know that we still face in transparency and, and ethical um, use of data and all, all those different things. As long as we're showing up in all of those, the rest of it's just flim flam. Mm. Really good answer. Love that. So you, you've also won some really impressive clients recently, Carwell, um, Elviv, a, a, yep. a woman's tech brand, which is super fascinating. I only learned about recently. What do you think attracts these sorts of brands to Mindshare? And, and what are they getting from you guys that, that they can't get from competing media agencies? Well, the, the clients that you're talking about are, are a sort of um, are a, a slightly different ilk to perhaps some of the ones that you mentioned in, in the introduction. So they are on a sort of a, a growth trajectory that, that, you know, kind of Ford or, 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 or Nike, you know, are, are not on. They're still obviously still obviously growing, but not not in a sort of nascent sense. Uh, and you know, obviously, we, we've also won LV Insurance, which is is a more kind of um, established brand. We big government win recently as well. So the, the wins that we're getting are sort of which are which I'm really pleased about are across that spectrum of clients. So established advertisers, UK advertisers, UK government, for instance, but also those brands that you talked about in terms of. Uh, they're often owner um, owner run, or you know they haven't um, IPO'd or whatever it might be. I think what attracts them, what attracts them to a media agency in general, but also hopefully more so Mindshare, is that they know that they're getting a sort of a, a sort of diminishing return perhaps on their growth, and that some some advice on media, whether that's you know how much uh, money they need to spend in advertising, whether that's uh, can we you know add some more channels to our uh, already to our portfolio that we're using already so often lots of them are very active in social and you know they're, they're doing lots of work on facebook or, or 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 snapchat or whatever and we can give them that advice and we can be objective and we can say to them you know if you we, we think using lots of our business science team uh who can sort of, you know really crunch the numbers we think if you invest you know a certain amount of money in in kind of more mainstream what, what you might call mainstream legacy media we think you know the return will be wide so you know, it, they're asking the same question, which is how can you help us grow? They're they're asking exactly the same question as all of our clients are. Can you help us grow? Can you help us um, launch new products? Can you help it? You know, they're asking the same questions. It's just I think they're coming at it from a slightly more 
um, well, they're less well established in in some of the um, channels in the, in the media that we that we that we operate in, and uh, we can give them a, that advice. And so, sometimes the advice is now's not the time. Um, you know, you're, you're not quite at that point where you know you've got enough penetration in your kind of core. Uh, audiences, you know, or core customers that, you know, that that you know, broadcast media, for instance, is is the right thing for you at the moment. And we can give them advice. We can be objective with them. Often we work with them on a sort of contract basis. So we'll do that kind of positioning and and budget setting and 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 all that kind of stuff as a sort of one-off project. And then hopefully that they then become they then become clients. And of course, the one thing that we offer them that they can't get on their own is scale. Uh, and and the and the kind of value and efficiencies and effectiveness that comes with scale in some of the channels that they might need to operate in. So television, for instance, you know you have to be a you have to be a sort of scale player to to be able to get some of the the pricing that's going to make sense for them. You, know, you can't kind of do that on your own. What's different about what brands like Ford and Nike are looking for? More kind of uh, traditional brands, well-established brands. What's different about what they are looking for from Mindshare versus a um, LV insurance, let's say? Um, yeah, or, or, or one of the, one of the sort of the, the growth one of the growth brands. Yeah. Um, well, in, in a way, as I said, in a way, they're 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 all everyone's looking really for the same thing, which is how do I build my brand equity using advertising? How do, how do I you know, how do I make sure that, you know, customers or prospects or potential customers really understand me as a business and as a brand and as a, as a, as a, as an entity and, and how do I, you know, how do I sell more products and, and how do I do that? How do I do that most effectively and most efficiently? They're really always, though, those are the two fundamental questions I think that most clients are asking us. And obviously um, some of the more established clients are, um, you know, launching new products or new services or new um, propositions. Uh, so the emphasis um, goes more on launch rather than um, defend or, or nurture. But most of the smaller the smaller businesses that we talked about mostly are about launching into a new launching for a new set of customers and new clients. But but effectively they're asking the same they're asking the same question: How do I get my how does my advertising work best to deliver my brand message? To make sure that people choose me over my competitor when they when they come into market, and then of course when people are in market, how do I maximise my sales? And it, it's 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 really not much more complicated than that. And I guess there's a perception that these newer brands are the ones that have to invest and spend a lot more early on because they're trying to establish a brand and 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 grow in a new market. Whereas the perception is that more established brands don't have to spend at that, at that level anymore because they've once done that um, and now they just need to maintain. Is that true? You know, how important is it for a Nike or a Ford or an established brand to keep spending at a certain level to kind of keep that mainstream awareness versus what a newer player would have to do to kind of grow and gain market share? I mean, I think it's absolutely crucial. Um, so, so for, for established brands, our, our more established um, clients, absolutely essential. Uh, all of them are operating in unbelievably competitive categories. Um, you know, even Nike, and not Ford, you know, kind of category leaders, you know, they are operating in unbelievably competitive categories. Whether a new, there are new players coming in, um, there are other established brands who, who clearly are um, trying to attract you know, similar customers to, to buy their products. So absolutely crucial to continue spending 
at the right level, not, not to overspend, but to continue at the right level so that your brand equity um, and your sort of position and proposition are super clear to you know, customers who might be in market or might be coming into market. So I think, you know, we, we do a lot of work with clients about budget setting at the beginning of, of, of a planning cycle uh, and ensuring that, you know, our, our kind of our marketing um, CMOs and our marketing directors have enough information to go back into the business and say, you know, to the CFO and to the CEO, I need, you know, um, this amount of money to achieve what I need to achieve this year. That's one of the fundamental things that we do as a sort of planning uh, business, give them give them that opportunity, uh, give them that information. So it's absolutely crucial that they continue spending. And I think when you look at um, businesses that stop spending or, or dramatically reduce their spending in the sort of first wave of COVID, in the first wave of lockdown, you know, there's lots of empirical evidence to suggest that if you do that, and if you're not advertising at, at the right level for you know for a number of months, it can do it can do quite a lot of damage to brand equity and therefore performance of your advertising. And the, and, and lots of our clients continued spending through uh, that really difficult period and and have benefited massively from, from it because uh, their competitors stopped spending and they've basically managed to steal market share because of it. So. You know, advertising really does work. I mean, there's still there's still a huge sure. amount, a huge <laughs> amount, huge amount of debate about how which bits work, and you yeah. know, that classic phrase. Oh, I know fifty percent of it works, but I don't know which fifty yeah. percent. That's gone now. That, that that's all. You know, there's there's a huge amount of um, science and and data and, and data management, and data science that goes behind understanding why something works and um, how you can make it happen again. So I think you know it's crucial for those clients to, 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 to spend at the right levels. And that's, again, as I say, something that we help them with for the, for the, for the smaller clients or the smaller businesses. Um, again, it's about, it's about not spending too much, not about not spend, spending too little. It's being within that kind of um, spread of spending enough that it makes a difference and you can see how much of a difference it makes so that you can, you know, not everything will work. Not every channel will work as well as every other channel. Not every, you know, some channels work better in combination with others. But if you don't spend enough, um, it's it's quite difficult to work out what is working, what isn't. So again, the skill that we bring, I think, is to help them choose the right channels, choose the right budgets, and then really look at the results and work out what their next step needs to be. Um, you know, does TV work really brilliantly? So lots lots of businesses, um, you know, that are kind of more um, digitally native, if you like. Um, they are, they are very ad responsive. So if someone sees an ad, they get on their phone and they immediately download the app or they immediately go onto the website, whatever. So being able to track that really precisely so that you can see which channels are driving, which, you know, success events on, on their website or their, or their, on their app store. You know, that's really, really interesting because they haven't used media before, uh, potentially, and you can really, you've got a sort of clean view about what's working, what's not. Um, but again, it's all, it's all down to making the right recommendation, not spending too much so that it's wasteful or has diminished return, but spending enough so you can see that it's making a difference. And where are we at with TV right now? Uh, you know, love TV, so, absolutely love, love TV. TV. By the way, I think it's the golden age of TV right now. There's never been, uh, probably been a better time, but there's been there's so many shows, a lot of great content, but there's a lot of over the top TV. There's a lot of Netflix, a lot of Amazon. Yeah. People aren't going direct to. The, you know, the, the traditional board, um, maybe I'm wrong, but what's the role of TV now? I hear a lot about uh, addressable TV and programmatic TV and all the rest of it, connected connected TV. Where are we at with TV and what role does it play in the mix? 
Well, I think if you look at it from a from a viewer's perspective, we, we can talk about addressable TV, we can talk about broadcast TV, we can talk OTT, whatever. If it's on a big television in your sitting room, it's just TV, <laughs> right? So, so if you're and people aren't sitting there going, oh, you know, it's an over the top service, and you know, it's just you know, yeah. come on. So, <laughs> so the consumer experience or or the 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 advertising experience that you know that you can deliver in someone's front room or in their kitchen or upstairs on their on their laptop or whatever. You know, with all of the with that massive armory of different things that you talked about in terms of the different ways that TV now manifests itself, or te- you know, um, AV if you want you want to call it the technical technology. You know, the consumer doesn't see the difference if it's a if it's a great show with really good advertising, fantastic experience, contextually relevant to them. Hopefully, um, you know, that type of advertising still for me is you know for most categories is the preeminent way um, to deliver brand or performance or a combination of the two. Uh, and obviously how you surround that advertising with other things. So making sure that search is working correctly, making sure that your SEO is optimized so that you know if people look for you um, when they've seen that, but all, all those different things, mm. clearly that all needs to happen for, for you know, TV just doesn't work on its own anymore. Um, because everyone, you know, everyone's got a website, everyone's got um, you know, a social presence, everyone, you know, so as a trigger for for people to look at that other content that that coordination and and all of that kind of brilliant stuff that needs to go on in the background is the thing that makes television so powerful but but television advertising on television on a big screen for most people um it is you know if you see it on television you're kind of you're kind of interested because it's because that's just you know it's just a it's just the way the way it is um Obviously, there are audiences who don't um, consume a huge amount of live um, broadcast television. So, so outside of sporting events, outside of Britain's Got Talent final, or yeah. you know whatever it Master is, Chef. Master Chef, or, or Bake Off, <laughs> Bake you know, yeah. it, you know that there are audiences who are, are not consuming lots of that television. They're they're mm. Uh, watching it when they want to they're doing it on demand all the on-demand services now uh you know incredibly sophisticated and complex huge amount of data that goes behind them even the algorithm that tells you what to watch or suggests what you want to watch is based on your own kind of viewing you know it's, it's hugely complex but again back to the consumer experience even if you're 20 years old and you've never watched bbc one in your life but you're watching on iPlayer or you're watching ITV Hub or you're watching all four and you see advertising, it still it still has a similar effect, just slightly more difficult or slightly different way of reaching those people. Uh, but I still think that preeminent um, effect that TV advertising or great advertising has in TV content um, is still unbelievably important and, and fuels a lot of the growth um, that we see with our clients and fuels a lot of the other channels um efficacy because you know as i say if you see things on television you know almost almost by definition it it it, it resonates with you and, and has some kind of impact and then if you if you then discover them on social then it's a it's a you know it's a, it's a combined effect mm. um and i think i totally agree with you golden age of television it's a, i call it the golden age of content um because then it kind of gets our tv debate about other way but you know there's a lot of it there's so much money being spent on content production. Um, I think I read somewhere that Amazon's content budget, this is about two years ago, I think, Amazon's content budget was the third biggest in Hollywood. Oh, really? You know? 
So, yeah, um, surprised. you know, they're into the Premier League now and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And, and, and actually, I watched quite a lot of the Premier League stuff over Christmas. And it's a good on Amazon. Adver- yeah, it's a good advertising mm. experience. You know, watched it on my big TV. I've got the Amazon app on, on my TV. Um, and it's a good advertising experience. Now, how much effort we need to go to to get that advertising to me is is different than the old days. It used to be just, you know, used to be just broadcast. But for me as an experience, it was just television. I don't think the content gold rush is going anywhere soon. So Mindshare and Mother won the Grand Prix of Grand Prix at the Drum Awards, the end of year rap party celebrating all of the award winners for 2021 and your work with KFC um, uh, won. Maybe you could just talk us through, for those that haven't seen it or unaware of it, maybe you know, talk us through sort of what was involved in it. But what stands out to you as kind of notable to that campaign success, both in terms of the creative and, and the effectiveness? Uh, well, the, the campaign that you're referring to is it's um, Finger Licking Good, yeah. um, the, the sort of relaunch of that strap line, which the timing of which coincided with, you know, obviously the pandemic. So encouraging people to um, lick their fingers was was uh, was probably not particularly a responsible thing to do. But, you know, the, the campaign had been planned, the creative had been done. And actually what Mother did brilliantly, and I've got to say, as much as we love picking up the award, it was very, very much a team effort. Um, You know, we've got some amazing clients at KFC um, who are super brave and really, really understand their business and how to advertise their business better than possibly any client I've ever uh, had the pleasure to work with. They're brilliant, by the way. They're so sharp. They're, They're absolutely fantastic. But, you know, the unbelievable brain trust at mother freud's also we work with from a sort of pr perspective and obviously we contribute a little bit to it in terms of distributing their amazing content um but but the the campaign was 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 super simple which is we can't tell the country to uh you know to lick their fingers so we'll pixelate out its finger licking good and actually it plays to a sort of airing but plays to an airing but bass principle which is if you've got a um a record you know really recognizable asset then that is that's the thing that makes your advertising really um, powerful mm. and of course it's finger looking good everyone knows that phrase even if you even if you've never seen advertising it, it's kind of on their boxes and or whatever so the campaign was it was it was a lot big launch campaign lots of um really uh you know fantastic broadcast media lots of um we used lots of outdoor lots of tv lots of av lots of um addressable media and but there were lots of really interesting media techniques and and tactics that we used to sort of really you know, resonate with the right audiences and tell the story in the right way and kind of unpack the whole uh, principle of the, the idea behind the campaign. Um, all those campaigns, you know, if the creative idea is, you know, is, is unbelievably, unbelievably powerful, then we can just help make that happen. We can help tell that story. We can use all those techniques. And I think that was the basic reason why that campaign was so successful. Totally resonated with the audience, totally um, hit the zeitgeist to where we were as, an, as, a, as, a, as a country. Mm. Um, was, a, was a totally, you know, brilliantly recognisable, pixelated, uh, mm. you know, thing mm-hmm. that everyone kind of saw and understood. And it just kind of captured the mood of, of the nation, I think. Um, and it was unbelievably successful. You know, KFC had a brilliant, brilliant year, uh, well, 2020 and 2021, and they've done unbelievably well. Just a just a brilliant brilliant campaign to be involved with, but but a massive team effort. 
let's get on to our favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm super excited to ask you some of them as well. Almost who's the person behind the brand sort of questions. First one, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. <laughs> I'm failing constantly. Um, <laughs> if you talk about my career, when I, when I look back on, um, you know, I've always loved new business, always loved pitching, always loved winning. But there's a there's a couple of pitches. I won't I won't name them, but there's a couple of pitches where, you know, for a number of different reasons, you look back and go, oh my god, you know, if if only we'd done things differently, we just really shot ourselves in the foot there. And it's usually because it's the old Einstein quote, isn't it? Which is if you had an hour to to save the earth, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem of five minutes. And, yeah. and you know, and and usually when I've failed, it's because we've jumped straight to execution can't see the wood for the trees. And then by the time you realize you, you've, you've got it wrong, it's too late. Mm. Um, so, so I suppose the, the lesson learned is always spend more time thinking about the problem because the solution will suggest itself. You know, new business failure always hurts, always hurts. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to media marketing and advertising. Um, well, I, met, I mentioned Nick Milligan. He was a very inspirational leader and was, you know, somebody who I kind of really respected and looked up to. Um, there are probably four people I worked with at, um, at Mediacom. So Mediacom was my first agency role. And I worked with uh, Karen Blackett, who was unbelievable. She, she, was, she was in the new business team at the time, then obviously became CEO. So... Uh, I think my first day I was in a meeting with her about a pitch. So always, I've always had a um, very close affinity with her and she's been an amazing mentor to me and, and has given me untold guidance and advice. Um, she's just an amazing, amazing woman. Uh, but the, the two, two, three characters actually, four, sorry, four other characters at, at, um, at Medicom who ran the strategy team. So a guy called Matt Mee, who's now the global CSO, Sean Healy, a guy called Steve Gladys, and then uh, my best mucker uh, in media, which is um, Lou Martel. Those people were hugely influential and have remained um, remained mentors. But Karen, I think more than anybody else, has helped guide me and give me really good advice. All, all great names and a list of future podcast guests in the making. <laughs> Thank you for that. You're welcome. Tell us about some of your favourite books, fiction, non-fiction, business related, whatever. Oh, that's a good one. So I'll get the slightly pretentious one out of the way first. So George Orwell. No, well, no, I mean, any, any, anything written by Orwell, uh, I would say is in my favorites. Um, but the, the book that got really turned me on to literature, I guess, was a book that I read when I was doing French A-level, which I read in English, uh, which is called uh, it sounds it sounds very pretentious. By, by a guy called Alain Fournier. It's called Le Grand Monde, which is a which is a French classic. It's it's one of their it's one of their kind of like staples in their kind of um, in their kind of educational system. He, he unfortunately was killed in the First World War. Only wrote one novel, and it's about sort of about a story of discovery about this guy called uh, Moan, who who basically goes on this uh, kind of weird kind of crazy adventure um, back in 1910 or whatever it was. But it's just an unbelievably beautifully written book. What else? Give us give us one more. Give us two more. So Politics in the English Language, which actually isn't a book, but it's an essay by George Orwell. Um, I think it's about 10 pages long. Um, taught me how to write. 
Um, so if you're if any aspiring writers out there, you want to read, I think he I think he wrote it in 1954 or something. Um, no, it might have been earlier than that, 1948 or something. Uh, but it just basically explains how to write English. <laughs> it's like it sounds sounds really simple, but it's um, unbelievably <laughs> compelling, and it's still unbelievably relevant today. Amazing. And then there's a very little known book. I read history at university, and I'm interested in all aspects of history, but especially American history. And there's a book called Nam by um, a guy called Mark Baker, um, who's a journalist. And all he did was he, he simply interviewed um, GIs who'd been in Vietnam um, about their experiences. And I guarantee if you read the book, you will have a completely different understanding of the war in Vietnam than any anything that you've ever seen, whether that's a documentary or it's a film or whatever it is. Um, and the most astonishing thing is most of them really enjoyed it. He interviews all these GIs and they're like, yeah, I was like 19 years old. I was from a horrible slum in the Bronx, went out to Vietnam, got three square meals a day, drove a tank. You know, I loved it. I went back three times. That's not the story that you hear from... Uh... Vietnam veterans. I mean, it's, it's some some of the not that things, I've spoken to that many Vietnam no. veterans. I mean, I mean, some of the, some of the things they describe in the book are hideous. I mean, absolutely hideous. I'm not suggesting it's a it's a light mm, read, sure. but um, it's a fascinating book if if you're interested in that sort of thing. Really interesting. Most influential book. Most most influential. Um, mm. Le Grand Moon. It would be up there. Um, hmm. Um, London Fields by Martin Amis is just a genius. Um, yeah, but probably the Grand Moan's most influential, I think. Does make me say it makes me sound very pretentious the fact I've picked a French author and you know, but <laughs> it, it 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 you know the answer is the answer. Um, what else can I ask you? Um, Amazon Prime or Netflix? What are you watching or streaming that's good? Um, I, I use both. Um, I'm just watch. I'm rewatching Peaky Blinders. Um, rewatching, re-watching. Wow, yeah, yeah. I watched it when it kind of came out, and um, but that that's really good. Um, the best thing I've watched on Netflix so recently was Mindhunter. I don't know if you, I don't know if you've come across that. No, I um, it's a, it. it's sort of a, it's almost like a biopic of um, how the uh, behavioural sciences uh, uh, practice in in the in the FBI um, came about. So two guys who pioneered the kind of techniques they used to. Um, you know, profile um, serial killers, uh, and it again, you know, yes, lights, lights <laughs> it's not because <laughs> the whole idea is that they interview all of these kind of like crazy um, serial killers, uh, but it's absolutely compelling, fantastic drama, really good. What is it about serial killers that we like? We like watching a lot. Of, there's a lot of shows about the mind of serial killers and these sorts of people. It's weird that we that we like <laughs> watching. Them. This is my this is my pop psychology. Um, answer to that which is i think everyone wonders whether they've got some of the some serial killer in them interesting i'll let that hang there i'll let that hang in the air fairly we'll we'll (laughs) move on fairly quickly from that one uh don't know what to do with that in the last three to five years what ideas behaviors or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes so the habit that I've that I've really dialed up. I'm always sort of kind of into running, but I've really dialed up um, running. Not not necessarily just simply from a fitness perspective, but but from a sort of mental well-being perspective. Uh, and I think across the across the um, 
across the pandemic, I think I would have been I would have been lost without that release. I think um, I, I run with the, the same guy um, uh, that I've known from university. He lives around the corner from me, and that the two of us kept each other sane. I think during during lockdown, it kind of resulted in um, getting um, put on a bit of a bit of um, timber over Christmas, but got got fairly fit and managed to to complete a couple of like really big important races, which which um, which I was really pleased about. Um, so there's a Gower um, Peninsula um, endurance race, which is which is you know tough, um, and I would never have been able to do that sort of three years ago. But but really really glad I did that. So that that's the habit. Um, thinking wise, um, I mean I just you know I, I as I've got a little bit older, I've realised that actually that old adage of you know two ears and one mouth, you know listening more. Um, is so you know it's so useful one it's not it's not particularly um draining on your energy because you're just kind of absorbing stuff um and you can probably tell i quite like talking but but just listening to what people are saying and hearing behind their words i think is just is, is part part of hopefully trying to be quite a good leader because then you can understand why someone's asking you for something rather than just hearing what they're asking for absolutely love that What's the most interesting thing that we don't know about Gem Lloyd Williams? I've got a technical qualification in tap dancing. Oh, have you? Yeah, I, uh, I managed to managed to pass a couple of exams when I was a kid. Um, so I'm actually graded as a tap dancer. Amazing. I would not have known that. That's amazing. Love that. Thanks for sharing. And, then, that. and I suppose the only other thing is I, I was desperate to join the Royal Marine Commandos when I was a kid. But unfortunately, my eyesight, um, I, I'm completely colorblind. So uh, I wouldn't be able to sell, tell green from red, which obviously if, you, if you're if you a sailor, you'd know that would be um, That's pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, never never even made it past yeah. the medical. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in the media industry? Um, I'd say... I'd say go into it. Go go if you want to get started. I think go into you know do your research. Understand what your passion is. What your what your what you know where you want to apply your skills. Um, and that doesn't have to be well. I'm good at math, so I'm going to be in the you know the, in the programmatic team. Like what what's what what is it that kind of really makes you happy? What do you like doing? And then try and find something that corresponds with that. Um, it doesn't have to be a direct com- direct correspondence, but something that enables you to do what you really enjoy doing or the type of thing that you enjoy doing. Because I think if you've got that and the energy that you bring as somebody who's starting on their career, if you put those two things together, you'll be successful. But I think if you bring loads of energy, but you, do, you, you go into a job where you're really not enjoying it or you're uncomfortable um, doing what you're doing or it's just not something that particularly interests you, that energy will soon dissipate and, and you'll have to start again. And my final question, Jem, what is it you know about the world of media and advertising today that you wish you knew 30 some years ago when you first started your career? It would be that um, how you make someone feel almost always trumps what you say to them. Like all things in life, most people, whatever question somebody asks you, you're probably not going to come up with the exact answer the exact the exact right answer and even if you do there's probably subjectivity in in that answer there's subjectivity in people's but how you make someone feel how you 
listen to what they've asked you, understand them, show respect, show empathy, um, show energy, um, and make them feel good because they've asked you the question. I think that's an unbelievably useful thing to know that how you make someone feel is probably more important than the answer that you give them. Great place to end. Love that. Jem, thank you so much for doing this. It was an absolute pleasure. We have been speaking with Jem Lloyd-Williams. He's currently the CEO at Mindshare. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 160 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in media, marketing and advertising. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathanagencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Tyler Baller is our booker. Christoph Braschek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Thomas, we just had a really interesting conversation there from Jem Lloyd Williams, the CEO of Mindshare UK. He talked about the purpose of modern media agencies delivering really high quality work for their clients. Talk about what this means in the context of the clients that you're working with at Account Insight. It's once again, really interesting to hear perspectives coming from a CEO of one of the big agencies. I'm a big fan of, of Mindshare and, and their work. They do have a different proposition than, than most of your agencies, even though you could say, well, it's just the same, but they are not. But but how it reflects, what how we see it, is a connection to the quality uh, element. And when we talk about precision, when we talk about understanding the target group, when we talk about reaching the right audience, the right time, uh, in the right media, etc. And it correlates very well with with the media agency approach about delivering high quality, understanding the market, understanding how to invest, where to invest, how much to invest as well on the precision element that, that we bring to the equation. We don't do the, the overall campaign uh, strategy, but what we assist with is providing the quality of reaching the right audience. So we help the agencies and the clients and the brands mapping the target audience, the companies that, that is of importance for, for the brands. And then it's it's really about mapping that market and securing that we will reach the companies that matters, the companies that counts. And that I feel that 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 really works well with bringing quality to the equation, bringing quality to the clients. And it for sure correlates with the agencies emphasizing on doing a good work because it's very much about understanding the title. It's very much about execution. And it's very much about being very much aware of, of the spent, the investment, level of investment from the, from the brands, from the clients. How much don't do too much, don't do too little, but, but secure the, secure the brand, secure the positioning, uh, secure the brand equity. Uh, and I, I do believe that, that account insight is, is, is part of that equation, part, part of able to, to assist on, on that journey because of the quality we bring through precision and through targeting. So, and it means that, that no matter if we have international brands with, with clients all over the markets, cross countries, uh, we're still able to pinpoint them all and do multi-country campaigns at the same time, not reaching 
total markets, but reaching the companies that matters. Uh, and in that way, I, I do believe that there is an, an easy uh, understanding uh, between what we do and, and what agencies like Mindshare are providing to the market and, and, uh, and telling their clients. We, we also talked about the importance of brands, whether they are legacy brands or new entrants to the market, to continue to invest in their brand, to continue to spend in order to maintain share of voice. Talk about the importance of doing that from your perspective. Well, I would say that the more established, the more knowledge you are on your target group. Uh, so so when you talk to, to uh, very established brands, and we do that on a regular basis, they are very, very specific on, on the so-called target account list, the tell target account list. And, 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 and it's about, okay, these are the ones that matter. We want to reach those. And, and no matter how big the brand is and well-known the brand is, it's still about, it's still a matter of communicating to the market, both uh, securing uh, your position, but also uh, communicating uh, product, product proposition, product developments, new product launches, and stuff like that. It's not obvious to, to anyone that suddenly, no matter what brand it is, that, that they now have a new product. You have to tell the market that this is new, this is coming. Uh, so it is really a matter of of finding out uh, who to target and, and how to how to balance that during the journey. So I would say that that at least half of all the campaigns we do is is on behalf of very established, well known, sometimes super brands that that still wants to reach out to uh, to 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 the market. Uh, and then we also provide the ability to to communicate so precise that you actually do it below the radar, so that that nobody else, the market cannot see that what you're actually communicating to to the ones that that matters. But it's very specific communication to different verticals. Uh, so we're going from leaving mass communication to specific maybe industry vertical communication, or even client communication in some cases, uh, doing that. Uh, but but. Uh, I I totally agree that that is it's about being out there, being uh, securing your your securing your position in the market, building the brand. You have to continue building the brand. <laughs>